welcome to Clockworks, a Legion podcast. I'm Paul Moffat. I'm Jan Moffat. And this is the podcast where we always update on time because it's Clockworks. No, no, we're not doing that. No, you don't want... No. Okay. <laughs> so, today we're talking about uh, uh, Legion episode two. Um, we're going to give this episode the title Road to Nowhere for reasons that we'll talk about as we go forward. Um, Road to Nowhere was written by Noah Hawley and directed by Michael Uppendahl. Michael Uppendahl is not a name I was familiar with. When I looked it up, he's directed uh, a number of things, but he directed several episodes of Mad Men. That's his big... Oh, he directed okay. a couple episodes of Fargo, and he directed a bunch of episodes of Mad Men. I feel like... Um, that kind of reminds me that we said in the last episode that there's a 70s aesthetic on this show. I don't know, my decades. I think, thinking more about it, that it's pretty universally a 60s, more than 70s aesthetic. I guess. I, I thought the kind of orangey, velour thing was more 70s than 60s. But frankly, neither of us were alive in either the 70s or the <laughs> 60s. We were born in the 80s, so whatever. But it kind of makes you think... Uh, the 60s aesthetic of the show in general and having a director who directed yes. Mad Men like he knows his 60s aesthetic and you can see some real 60s look in this episode I absolutely think. yeah I think that it's a pretty sense. good looking episode mm-hmm. I, think I think he does, do does well uh, so Jan do you want to take us through the beat by beat all right so we start with the Legion logo and Going forward, the Legion logo changes every time. Like, the logo itself is the same, but where it is in the episode changes. So, Mm -hmm. in this episode, it starts Mm -hmm. on black with a whole bunch of whispering over the logo, much like the voices we hear in David's head. So, this takes place immediately following the last episode. Melanie, Potonomy, Carrie, Sid, and David, as well as some other random people, float down the river in a motorboat as dogs and men in riot gear, along with the eye search the riverbank. They arrive at a modern-looking building, all glass and stairs. This is Summerland. David, in a voiceover, starting at the beginning, says that Summerland is a place they say does not exist. A montage of David lying in the bed, frightened, overwhelmed by voices. Things come in and out of focus. Melanie comes to focus, explaining about the evolution of humans, which is pretty much the standard explanation of mutants. In a montage, David meets the people of Summerland and disperses them lying in bed trying to block out the voices. Melanie explains that he's a telepath and possibly a telekinetic and about the divisions that were created by the government to kill them and to control them. David is stressed out in bed, his hands over his ears, and Melanie says he's sick and he needs to focus on a simple voice calling his name. He slows his breathing. He hears the voice saying, David, David. She tells him to turn down the volume knob and we see like visually the volume knob that he turns down. And then we see her face as, and a voice talks aloud, but her mouth doesn't move. She says, memory work begins tomorrow. Sid comes in, sits on the bed as well. And David asks her what that means. And we cut. So the first thing that strikes me is that we begin... We begin with the music. The song is uh, Road to Nowhere, which is yes. where we get the title of the episode. And the voice singing Road to Nowhere is a song by Talking Heads, 
at very 80s in the original recording. Yes. The version that we hear on the show is not very 80s, is quite hauntingly beautiful, actually. Mm-hmm. And it's performed by none other than Rachel Keller, the actress who plays Sid. Yeah. So we start with Sid singing, and we start with David talking. That's interesting. And it's interspersed. Yeah. Her singing, him talking. Mm-hmm. And the voiceover is actually just as unusual for this sh- I mean we're only one episode in but yeah. the voiceover is just as unusual for the show as her singing in character would be I don't know that we are meant to be able to recognize her as singing and I don't know that we could say that she is singing in character necessarily mm-hmm. but if we did decide she was singing in character that would be no less unusual than the voiceover itself is yes and given the you know knowing the show even one episode in, kind of expect them to pull the rug out from under me about that voiceover and reveal that, you know, he was talking to someone all along, that kind of thing. And they don't do any of that. It seems like it's very uh, far in the future voiceover. Right. Like maybe we haven't even reached the point. We won't reach the point for a long time when we find out where that voiceover is coming from. It's another element like in the pilot episode where the first half of the episode turns out to have been narrated to an interrogator. Yeah. Are we going to come to a point where the first season turns out to have been narrated to someone and this voiceover is a clue to that? I'm not sure. Or is it just like a kind of a strange choice? Yeah. I'm not sure. That's the first thing that strikes me about this section. Mm -hmm. Um, But I like it. Yeah. That aspect of it. It's interesting. It is. I also notice in this section, you said in our last episode that Happy Jack is set in fall. Oh, yeah. It's definitely this, summer. Yeah, this is definitely a summer episode. I mean, obviously, the place is called Summerland, and the trees are all green and beautiful. It's definitely a summery and place. It's, you know, it's the flashbacks throughout the episode, the flashbacks all happen in what seems to be summer. Yeah. Uh, some of them are definitely summer. Some mm-hmm. of them are ambiguous. But uh, the outdoor flashbacks and memories throughout the entire episode to look ahead uh, continue in what we see in this original scene, that this is a summer episode. Mm-hmm. So Melanie, what do you think about, like, Melanie gives this kind of explanation and we get these flashes. We don't quite get here her whole explanation. But, like, is she giving him the whole rundown of, like, what exactly mutants are because it felt like he knew before in the first episode, did he know what a mutant was? I don't know. I mean, I don't think that he did. Mm-hmm. No, I don't think that he did. No, he just knew he had powers. He knew he had, I mean, he thought he was schizophrenic. And even after yes. he discovers, even after he learns that what he has is not schizophrenia, I don't think that he has a framework within which to understand what is happening and what it means. Yeah. And she's giving, and she's, she's trying to give him that. Trying to give him that. It's one of the things, actually, it's a good point to bring up, that one of the things that she's explicitly trying to do is create a narrative for him, right? Right. It's a new narrative that explains who you are and what is happening to you. Mm-hmm. And she starts the episode doing exactly that. Not the memory work, this is your specifics, but the, like, there are mutants, this is ha- and it's the show is changing what kind of narrative of a show it is, and she is changing the narrative of his story, both the show and Melanie, in the memory work, and immediately 
are trying to use narrative to control how we understand the world around us and kind of failing, mm-hmm. right? Like if that beginning or that beginning section with Melanie, I like that you said it's the standard X-Men explanation Yeah, because I think very, I think it's a purposeful choice that that's the explanation you would give if you were about to have a standard X-Men show. Yeah. And it's, you know, the show isn't a superhero show. And it's like um, Melanie is trying to control the narrative of what kind of show this is. This is going to be a superhero show. Humans yeah. are mutating. And the just like she can't control, she can't actually create a narrative that controls how David understands himself. She also can't create a narrative that explains how the show understands itself. Well, and like, I mean, Melanie is so interesting. And like, we don't know where her power is. What is Melanie's power? Does she have, or mutation, does she have one? She talks to David in his mind, but does she only do that because he? she knows he can hear her? Yeah. Does she have... Is she? Does she have psychic powers that allow her to project her voice, or yeah. is she just take, uh, making use of the fact that he has psychic powers that allow her to hear him? And definitely, in the first half of the episode, this is kind of their standard thing. This is, they're going through the steps of, you collect a mutant, you convince you know you tell them about mutation you take them through the memory work and the talk work and you take them through this is i mean maybe jumping ahead a bit here but she is not agitated at all no she's very easily just like explaining that this is what's going to happen because this is what always happens right she's familiar with all this it's it's a old hat to her yes exactly um i also think about this section she says she tells him the voices are louder here. Yeah, because they're more powerful, she says. Did she say why? Yeah, because of all the power. Okay. There are other people who have psychic powers, and that's why the It seems are like, louder. yeah. I, th- I watched it a couple of times. I didn't catch her ever telling him why the voices are yeah, more Yeah, she powerful. said they're louder here because of the power, because of okay. there's more power. I don't, don't know how I missed that then. But there is... Uh, Despite there being more power there, we don't actually see... We see, you know, kind of random kids walking around now, but none of their powers are manifesting in our in our presence. So that's kind of True. interesting. It just, to us, just looks like regular folks walking around. And, and even I hope like, that in the future we'll see a little more of those background people. Mm-hmm. And even in terms of the, uh, the people whose powers we do see throughout this episode, no one else in this episode is a telepath unless... Autonomy's memory powers maybe are a specific kind of telepathy. Mm-hmm. But nobody else is, like, able to read someone's mind or project their words into someone's mind, as far as we know, of the people whose powers we see in this episode. Yes. So, like, I mean, maybe it's futile to try to work out how uh, the mechanics of mutation works, but it doesn't, it doesn't make any intuitive sense that Sid's ability to switch bodies with someone would make her voice louder in David's head. Like, those right. seem like unconnected things. Right. Hmm. So, I I mean, like, I'm not saying that she's being dishonest, but that's weird. Oh, speaking of her trustworthiness, though, when Melanie's explaining the divisions to David, she says that uh, the divisions were created to try to control people like David and Sid. And there's two things that come from that. The first is maybe that's an indication that she doesn't have powers because they're trying to control people like you and Sid, mm. not people like us. Right. But the other thing is, isn't she doing exactly that? Like throughout oh, yeah. this episode, especially. 
but like I think we'll talk more about that at the end the for sure. Visions were created to try to control you. I am gonna control you, right? But she's phrasing it in the helping you, and so yeah. she definitely sees herself as a helper. But yeah, whether she is, yeah, absolutely. All right, so moving on. Uh, the next morning, Melanie leads David to a glass room in the middle of the woods to do memory work. They sit around an octagon table with poles in it. Sid stands in the corner, and Melanie and Potomi sit at the table, grab onto the poles, and journey into David's memory. Child David and Amy run through a meadow in the mountains. A dog named King is with them. Adult David, Potomi, and Melanie follow at a distance, and Potomi gives exposition about his power, how his power works. He can interact with the people, but that will change the memory. He encourages David to treat it like a museum. We follow moments in David's childhood. Child David walks to his house, plants in the garden with his mother, is measured against the wall. And adult David looks on fondly and explains they live in the country and seems to be happy to see his home. Then it's nighttime in David's room and his father reads him a horrifying bedtime story called The Angriest Boy in the World Gets Angry. His father's face is clouded in shadow and David can't see him. He begins to make the entire room shake, bringing them all back to the present. He freaks out in the glass room trying to get out, and Potomi puts him to sleep. So number one thing that uh, isn't chronological, but the number one thing about this is, why can't we see the father's face? That's yep. what comes to me first. And the show really draws attention to the fact that we can't see the father's face, but while we're talking about that, we don't see the mother's face either. No. It's not shadowed and blurred out and surreally unavailable. And they all seem to see it. They all act as but if the, they can see it, but, but we can't the, see yeah, it. Yeah, the camera can't see it. Like, if the mother was played by an actress we've met already on the show, I wouldn't recognize her. That's true. Yeah. I don't, I don't know that that's why we can't see it, but we don't see either of his parents' faces. Yeah. What? Well, that definitely, I mean, in terms of just from a production standpoint that opens them up to casting whoever but it does it is really interesting like his parents are his parents important amy seems so much more important than his parents yeah and he says i didn't mention this he says his dad died a year ago and he wasn't able he's really upset he wasn't able to go to the funeral wasn't able to get out of the hospital yeah they wouldn't let him out to go to the funeral yeah he doesn't say anything about what happened to his mother. Yes. And again, to like the, the angriest boy in the world story, which, by the way, is the freakiest and scariest story I've ever heard in my life. Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> the angriest boy in the world story is about a boy killing his mother. Yeah. We know that his father died a year ago. We don't know what happened to his mother. She does not seem to be around. We don't see her face either. And the story that he is telling, that he is remembering, is about an angry boy who kills his mother. And to jump forward a scene, the next scene, Dr. Poole is going to say, we know who that angry boy was, don't we? It was David. Did he kill his mother? Was I don't know. Was literal past that yeah. he killed his mother? I feel like... There would be more issues with him and Amy if he killed his mother. Right. Yeah. You know, Good like point. if if his mother died and he actually killed her and Amy doesn't know that would make sense. But I feel like Amy's and his relationship is not one of a brother and sister where he killed their mother. 
Yeah, their relationship is way too good for her to know that he killed her mother. Yes, exactly. Whether he did or not maybe is an open question, but she doesn't, as far as she's concerned, he didn't. Yes. Because if she thought he killed her mother, they would not be friends right now. No. That is an excellent point. And in terms of the relationship between Amy and David, their relationship is very mother-son. Mm-hmm. So it does seem maybe like they lost their mother at a young age and she helped to raise him. Yeah, she's certainly protective and uh, defensive and maternal. And Yeah. Yeah. There's a lot, like, in this scene that I noticed watching it really carefully at one point, the, the boy David is in the bed and his pillow has a picture on it of, like, astronauts but it looks like a brother and sister astronaut and they're pointing up at like some mountains and in the previous scene they were amy and david were playing in the mountains so i feel like this is like a literal representation of the previous scene on the kid's pillowcase but then when david is in the bed instead of his child self the pillowcase image is now the wallpaper I have no idea what any of that means or if I really was seeing what I was seeing, but it's either the, either the pillowcase matches the wallpaper exactly or which the pillow, is weird. which is also weird <laughs> or the pillowcase image moves to the wall, which is weird, which is also weird. <laughs> it's all weird. And I don't know what it means, but I, it's, when I watch it this close, I'm seeing these little things that make it seem like, the memories are unreliable. Yeah, and we well, we know the memories are yes. unreliable, right? We know that if we if the, if the only evidence we had was that his father's face is blanked out, that would be enough evidence to know that the memories are unreliable, mm-hmm. right? And I wonder if the moving pillowcase is just one of the details, and I wonder if we watched it a hundred times, we would find more details of, like, little things are shifting around in the room to create a atmosphere of surreal instability yeah. as a kind of sign that what you are seeing is not reliable, is not real, is not dependable, is not accurate, right? Not necessarily something that Michael uh, Uppendahl expects us to consciously notice, but it's something that unconsciously we notice that this room isn't the same mm-hmm. in every shot. It's unsettling. Yeah. It's very I unsettling. Yeah. If that's something, although it doesn't really, the fact that it's a brother and sister in the mountains and the last scene, they were a brother and sister in the mountains. They grew up in BC, by the way. Yeah, that is very, <laughs> yeah, the show is so filmed in BC. Wow, is it BC? Every show that we watch is filmed in BC. I would like to go move there and stock all these shows that we love. <laughs> um, <clears throat> I was going to say about this scene, about patonomy and yeah. a couple of things. One is I really notice as the memory work starts, patonomy is so blasé about the whole thing. Mm-hmm. Like he's partly, he's very comfortable with what he's doing. He's very confident about what he's doing. He's not that excited about the fact that he's in someone's memory. And of course, not from his perspective. Mm-hmm. But that all that all really emphasizes how unsettled and disturbed he gets when David's memory doesn't work the way memories are supposed to work. Like the fact that he's so blasé, part of the purpose of that is to show that he is an expert in memories. Yes, absolutely. And so when a memory doesn't look the way he expects it to, that really means something because that's coming from a voice with a lot of experience in how memories work. Mm -hmm. I mean, this is not a normal memory. Yeah. Right. I also just think, uh, 
uh, Jeremy Harris, the actor who plays Potomy, does very well with that. Yeah. Like, I think he's doing so well in these scenes with the, like, he's so confident in a, like, relaxed kind of way and then moves it into, like, this is not right and not normal. Yeah, I he's, great. yeah, I think he's becoming one of my one of my favorite characters. I quite like Potomy. I like how the camera gets fragmented, like it's shot through a kaleidoscope as David's perspective gets fragmented at the end. Like the things shake, but it also like there's a mirror image oh, over yeah. all of the characters. Like it's shot through a kaleidoscope, yeah. right? I, I think that's like a that. simple effect, but very effective. Yes. It's like the world is fragmented. Mm-hmm. Again, Michael Uppendahl doing a good job, I think. Absolutely, yeah. All right, so uh, after David is put to sleep by Potomy, there's more whispering, and we're in uh, a psychiatrist's office named Dr. Poole, we find out. David talks about his girlfriend leaving, and we flash to them arguing and going into the kitchen. He leaves Dr. Poole's office while eating Twizzlers, which is in the first episode, to find Lenny sitting out across the street from him, sitting on a stove. They walk together, and suddenly he wakes up to someone calling his voice. Back in Summerland, David shares a glass of milk with Potomy. He says the milk will help. He said, Potomy says, you do the memory work with him and the talk work with Dr. Bird. He says, David's the key to winning the war. And then quickly shifts gears, Potomy wants to know about the book, The Angriest Boy in the World Gets Angry. But David is distracted. We briefly flash to the eye and looking for them in the woods. And then Sid and David swing on a swing set. Sid explains that when she came there, all she wanted to do was go back and get him. And they talk about her being him and the lights and the voices. She confesses that she thinks she killed Lenny. She shows how they traded places in the car. David wants to hug her and touch her, but she explains how it feels and he backs off and calls it a romance of the mind. This is the scene that we talked about a second ago where Dr. Poole says that David was the angriest boy yeah. in the world. Well, I you know he says, and do you know who that little boy was? And you know who that little boy was, don't you? And David kind of talks like weird and then goes, yeah, yeah, well, yeah, yeah, it was me. In fact, I said Dr. Poole says the angriest boy in the world gets angry was, or the angriest boy in the world was David, but you're right. Dr. Poole asks, and David says it was him, but David says it was him in a, like, sarcastic voice as if, uh, me? You know, he doesn't yeah. say it as in, like, yeah, it was me. He says, like, a you know, is this what you want to hear? Yeah, exactly. Um, which is why I read it as... Yes, that is what Dr. Poole wants to hear. Mm-hmm. I mean, it as, you know, a very leading question. Yeah. Rather than uh, the kind of question that you see in fiction about psychiatrists, where they're not asking to help the patient understand something. They're asking to get the patient to say something that they want the patient to say. Right? I would hope that good psychiatrists don't do this. But yes. fic- in fiction, psychiatrists do that kind of thing all the time. All the time. And that comes back to, like, the question, did... David kill his mom. We already talked about that. Mm-hmm. I also, it also strikes me like he's the angry, if the angriest boy in the world is David, we haven't really seen present David get angry much. It's true. He gets angry in the interrogation room in Happy Jack and flips the red table. 
we've seen when he gets angry, he destroys everything. We've seen the crazy kitchen uh, mm. tornado. Yeah. But present David is not an angry, like, I mean, is not um, on the surface an angry person at all. Mm-hmm. I don't know what I have to say about yeah, that exactly. Yeah. But, like, even in this. Uh, he's an angry boy, but he's not an angry man. He was, an ang- he was, I don't know at all what the angriest boy in the world means. It's a weird, like, that can't have existed as a real book. <laughs> you know. <laughs> the main thing. Like, and that's what Podonomy says in these scenes is, did your parents really read you that book? Because that's messed up. I'm like, yeah, that's messed up. That can't be real. That's not and real. And no one book. would actually publish that. No one would actually publish a book like that. It, well, I mean, it seems like Edward Gorey. Like, okay. it almost just barely seems like a real Well, and the illustrations are very Edward gorey Yeah, right? exactly. I was going to say about Potonomy asking him is that, like, Potonomy has perfect recall of memories. He remembers everything. He was in David's mind. He saw the memory himself. David says, I'm not sure what happened. And Potonomy says, it looked pretty clear to me, right? So Potonomy, mm-hmm. in several ways, exhibits his mastery of control of and knowledge of David's memory. And then immediately follows that by saying, did that really happen? Like, he asks David to tell him whether the memory was real, even though he knows and we know that he can go into David's mind and experience the memory for himself. So why is he asking David, did that really happen? Right? Right. Like, he recognizes, it seems like just, you know, conversation, but it's like Potonomy recognizing, again, that there is something, and I think he isn't able to quite articulate it, but on some level, Potonomy recognizes that the memories he is seeing when he's in David's mind are not reliable. Yeah, absolutely. And he wants David to be like, tell me that these memories aren't reliable. Yeah. He wants to have a conversation with him, and he want, and he's trying to make it a two-way street. Like, this is why I'm starting to really like this guy, is he's making it a two-way street. He's talking about his own powers and saying, hey, you know, I, rem- I remember my birth. He tells this whole thing about how he remembers his own birth and how he has a father who doesn't remember very well, who couldn't even remember his name, Mm -hmm. and things like that. It seems like, you know, he's just trying to connect with David because he wants to know what the heck is going on with this guy. And wants to... um, Yeah, and it's, again, um, I really like the character, and it's also Jeremy Harris, the actor, being, like, a very compelling... Like, he's sitting there, he's not charismatic in the sense of like all eyes on him draw his attention he's a calm kind of charismatic but he's like right. extremely likable mm-hmm. him sitting there chatting with david he's just like yeah i think it's a lot of credit to the actor but he plays autonomy so likable yeah well i mean and like let's talk about that scene a little bit in like what it looks like is okay they're inside the building and inside the building in summerland there is this like circle of moss and grass and trees and a taxidermy goat <laughs> for some reason. I have thoughts about the moss and trees, but I don't know what's going on with the goat. <laughs> it's, it's a big like taxidermy mountain goat because David wakes up on moss and looks up and sees this like goat that is not alive, and then Potomomy's there with the milk and like. They're inside, and there's this, like, it's again, this, like, indoor-outdoor, inside-outside Yeah, so here are my two thoughts about that. 
One is what you just said, inside, outside, yeah. right? And I think we talked about this in Happy Jack, that what's yeah. outside, what should be outside is inside. Yeah. And what should be inside mm-hmm. is outside. And there's an element of, like, the psychological, of David's past and David's psyche and David's life that, like, what should be inside is outside. What should be outside is inside. There's Whoa. something in him that shouldn't be, and that keeps coming up again. The other big thought I have about this grassy section in Summerland and how, you know, there was a grassy wall in Clockworks is that this is signaling to us that Summerland is just another Clockworks. Yes, absolutely. Well, and then did you hear the announcements over the PA system? The time travel class has been canceled. (laughs) Advanced time travel class has been canceled and like blah, blah, blah is a levitation free zone. Yeah. And so there's like these little elements of humor in there. Like those crack me up and like. Advanced time travel has been canceled. Well, and like that opens a whole like can of worms of there's time travel. (laughs) Hello. That is kind of important. Yeah. That like could change everything. And not just time travel, advanced time travel. So, so, so basic time travel, that is like, <laughs> that's, still, I mean, that's still going on. Advanced time travel classes. If you can. So I really want this show to like just keep going because I want to know what's happening with that over there. Or maybe that's just a whole other like comedy show. Yeah. <laughs> a different the comedy section of, of Summerland. Yeah, absolutely. Um, uh, we should go back to Lenny and the stove. There's, yes. there's, uh, Lenny in the Stove is cut into two parts, and so we haven't gotten to the main part of it yet, but this is when he first sees her across yeah. the street. I was going to say, um, first, that back even further to him talking to Dr. Poole right. in the office, I really like in this episode and, uh, as a whole, I really like the time skips, the way that suddenly, like, part of his conversation will just disappear, or it'll go backwards, but especially the skips. Yeah. And, like, that gets a little bit of explanation as we go forward in the episode, but I just wanted to comment on that, like, yeah. the way that they're playing the surreal in this episode Ooh. is I'm really liking it. Skipping moments in time as a way to represent his confusion. Uh, and him hearing the tape recorder as it's recording. And so he'll hear Dr. Poole talking and hear the tape recorder in like yeah. a tiny second delay. And, I mean, it's a hard episode to recap, I mean, to do a beat-by-beat because there's so many tiny things that happen. And there's a lot of, like, back and forth and back and forth and back and forth. So, on Lenny, uh, did David know Lenny before he went to Clockworks? Apparently. So did they, like, go to Clockworks together? That was very, I was very surprised to find Lenny... In his memory of before Clockworks. Right, yeah. That they were friends before they left, before they went to the mental institution they both went. And it's again, I mean, to say one more time, I'm not sure, and I I think at this point I'm even less sure than I was in the first episode, that the Lenny with slick-backed hair and overalls in, in Amy's basement is in any way the same person as the Lenny in the mental hospital. Yes. And I'm not sure that the Lenny from before the mental hospital is the same as either of them. I mean, she acts a lot she like acts, the many in, Lenny in the mental hospital. She acts pretty, yeah, she acts very similar. I would, yeah. And I mean, yeah. But it's weird. She appears out of nowhere, though. Like, it's really weird. He just comes out of his psychiatrist's office, and she's, like, across the street, and the camera does this, like, weird, like, 
Baz Luhrmann focus all over on Lenny. And she's and sitting on a stove. She's sitting on a stove. And they have this whole conversation about, like, well, at first he asked, like, is that my stove? And it's not. Right. And, like, I took it from a girl that I finger-banged that had all these magnets on her fridge, so I figured she didn't need to had, do any more ragu anymore. No, she had uh, takeout menus on her fridge. Oh! She had all these takeout menus on their fridge, so I figured she didn't need to make any more uh, ragu. Or, I, by the way, Aubrey Plaza, oh, this Lenny. Killing it. Oh, so so good. Good. At the way that she, like, I feel like even better than in Happy Jack, the way that she is, like, can't stop talking, but also talking seems like a struggle, right? Like, she can't get her words out, but she also can't stop talking. Yeah, she's talking so fast, she can't even form sentences at the same time that she thinks. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. She's doing such a good job. I didn't... I, this takeout menus makes so much sense. I was so confused by like, <laughs> why why doesn't she even need a stove if she has magnets on her fridge? Yeah, I was so confused. Like, okay. Takeout menus, so she's she doesn't need a stove. Menus. Um, yes. Can we notice that the stove is red? <laughs> oh yes. The stove like is red. Red things in this color. Color in the color show. Color in the show. Like, oh, the carpet in Dr. Poole's office is bright orange. Yeah. So which makes it another, I didn't notice that, it a that makes it another mental institution place. Yep. It's, oh, oh, oh. <laughs> anyway. So what else happens in this, oh, uh, Sid and David are on the swing set. That old conversation. Sorry. Do you want to get back? Go back again to when he walks out to see Lenny, and she's sitting on the stove, there's a giant poster behind her of uh, Larry from the Three Stooges. <laughs> Yeah. And we had a big conversation about <laughs> yeah. this before we started recording, and maybe you wanted to move past it because our conversation didn't land on us having any idea what was up with that. Yeah, exactly. But I have two thoughts about it that are I'm not, you know, married either of them. But one is uh, Lenny's a stooge. Lenny is yeah. a stooge by which I mean, again, like she isn't herself. She isn't who we think she is. She's not, kind she of doesn't thing. feel real because exactly. she, she's she's in his head. I and don't the know. other thing is about that ins- is that Aubrey Plaza's performance is kind of vaudeville. <laughs> you yeah, know, like, connect her to the stu- three Stooges, and like she's doing great things, but she is not doing realism, and she's not even doing surrealism. Well, in the hospital, she's all like, like "I like this kid. She's got moxie," exactly. and that's very like, yeah, vaudeville. There's like a. You know, in the hospital, in Happy Jack especially, but in this episode too, uh, she talks kind of in cliches and she talks in like patter the way that she... Yeah, so the connecting her to the Three Stooges, actually there might be... I mean, it could just be that that's a striking image that was actually there when they were filming or who knows. I don't think it's a coincidence. I don't think anything in this show is accidental. Yeah. Are you gonna? Oh, um, I was gonna talk about uh, Sid David on the swing set and them having their whole conversation, and we finally got confirmation that Sid was never went to Summerland before this. Yes, she wasn't a plant in the hospital. She was literally in the mental institution. She came out. She went to Summerland. She wanted to go back and get David. Right. She had to do her work, which she's still obviously doing. Right. And then, so. Now we know officially that she was not a plant in the... She, we wondered that, but she didn't know yeah. Summerland until that moment in the car. Yeah. Why are they on swings? 
and sweet, and they're in a cute little. It's summer. It's <laughs> summer and it's sweet, and they're a little innocent yeah. couple. Why are there swings? <laughs> oh, that didn't really phase me. I don't know. There's like all sorts of things in Summerland. It's like a, it's, it's a school. Yeah, kind of. I guess it's not. They're all out. So I mean, not like adults can't use swings, but if you were building a place for the young adults, some of them are. There's no children. No, no, they're not children. If you were building a campus for adults, would you put swings on it? I don't know if they built it. I think maybe yeah. you, it's maybe, and maybe some of them have been there since they were children. Maybe, yeah. Maybe there have been children in the past. Maybe uh, Melanie and her husband had children. Maybe at some they point. Um, I do think, though, from a from a perspective of outside the show. They're just being on a swing set together is symbolic of again innocence yeah. and even naivety in their relationship. There's mm. a childish relationship in certain ways in the innocence and naivety sense. Yeah, uh, and the swings are a representation of that. Absolutely. Also, maybe the swings are a representation of instability. Yes. They move back and forth, and they don't stay where they should be. Mm-hmm. They don't stay where they are. I mean. Yeah. And they can move away towards each other, which they do in this scene, because he says, I want to hug you, and he kind of goes towards her, and she fully explains that it's not oh. just the skin on skin, it's not just the touching makes us change places, it feels like there's ants crawling on me when you get close to me. And he, in a awesome way, moves away from her. He yeah. realizes that he does not have her consent, and he moves away. He goes to the other side of the swing and swings right back because he knows that yeah. you don't touch someone when you don't have their consent, people. <laughs> so much good in that. Yay. It's so like, in terms of making him a sympathetic and likable protagonist, the fact yeah. that she says, you being close to me makes me uncomfortable and he immediately moves away. Yeah. It's even subtle, like, I mean, maybe not that subtle, but it's not like they're drawing attention to and he doesn't like, oh, well, in that case, I'll go away from you. Yeah. He just like immediately starts to swing away from her and it adds to this sense of sweetness in their relationship mm-hmm. that he's demonstrating a genuine care for her well-being. Yeah. Right? Um, also, man, the like being close to people feels like bugs on my skin is just heartbreaking. Yeah. To me, like my thought on that was yeah. in the in Happy Jack, her psychiatrist says all animals need touch to feel love. Yeah. And like she can't even being close to people is physically uncomfortable to her. My thought of that was just like heartbreaking. Mm-hmm. It's true. Oh, and Sid's non-touchiness, by the way, I think is a really uh, interesting way of doing all the most interesting parts of Rogue without retreading Rogue. Mm, right yes. like we've seen rogue a billion times yes but all the most interesting things about rogue sid gets to do the like isolation and the need for touch but not the desire for touch but also fear of it and i think that's always been the most interesting thing about rogue and we get to just put it on to a brand new character yeah. and give her not without recreating rogue's powers but recreating rogue's uh complications yeah absolutely David is in an MRI machine, and Carrie, male Carrie, is playing with various computers, talking to himself, but not to himself, to a different Carrie. He tells David to try to think of someone he loves, and he briefly thinks of Amy as a child, and then she flashes to Amy as an adult, talking about herself getting engaged. David is distracted by a barking dog. 
and this moves them to Lenny and David trying to sell their, the stove for drugs. A dog barks at da- David, and time fluxes between faster and slower. They eventually get the drugs and arrive home. They put it in the drugs into a ceramic frog that belches out vapor. David seems like he's already tripping as she's making the drugs. The things in the apartment are moving on their own. The furniture seems to roar. And then they lie on the floor and trip out. And David looks over and sees Lenny as the devil with the yellow eyes. Suddenly, Melanie, Autonomy, and David are there observing this memory. They ask David what he sees and then move to a memory about Dr. Poole. They go back to the moment where there seemed to be a glitch in how David was talking. David is convinced that he's not resisting, but they accuse him of resisting. They rewind and flash to David in the kitchen again, surrounded by flying objects. They try to travel to that time, but miss and end up in his childhood. Autonomy is unable to help. The Angry Boy book falls off the shelf, and both David and Child David cover their eyes. We get a flash of David's childhood blowing bubbles on the stairs, and suddenly it's the present. We hear a voice calling David, David, and he has a talk with Sid. They discuss Summerland and their safety, and David hears Sid's thoughts, and Sid is worried about what he'll hear. So, first thing the MRI machine makes me think of is uh, the MRI of death on house. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> on house, when someone goes into the MRI machine, some complications happen and they die. Yeah. Uh, and, frankly, it kind of works like that on this show, too. Well, because... Uh, MRI machines are just scary because you feel like you're in a coffin. Yeah. It's like a trapped, trapped feeling. You're in a coffin. You have to lie still for a long time. Mm-hmm. They're scary in general, and they play on a lot of common fears. fears. Yeah. I also, Bill Irwin, who plays uh, male Carrie, I think he is great. Mm-hmm. Uh, speaking of another member of the ensemble who is just so good. Mm-hmm. I feel like Ma- Carrie is so much more interesting than this character had really has any right to be. He's just like, you know, telling us, he's kind of telling us technical schematics of the machine. He's mm-hmm. saying, don't move, but he's so interesting to watch. He is. Well, and like, and this, it, I, this kind of thing drives me crazy, but I'm getting over it with this show is like, he's typing on a keyboard that's like an 80s, 90s keyboard but this is supposed to take place in the 60s. And so, and like, all the equipment is all, like, a mismatch of various... Yeah. I mean, I, I know it's not supposed to take place in any time, but I'll get over all that. It has a 60s aesthetic, but a futuristic technology, Stop. except when it has a 90s technology, except when it has an 80s technology, except yeah. when it has a... The time I just need is, to stop to yeah. stop trying to figure it out. I know that I need to do that, but it's hard sometimes. But, yeah, like... This is our first introduction to Carrie, and he's, yeah, he's really compelling right off the bat. And he's just yeah. doing these, like, all these, like, calculating. Doing things that just should not be interesting. And he's talking, and he's, he says he's, ta- he's talking to what seems like himself, and David is like, it's okay, I talk to myself too. Well, I talk to the voices, and Carrie is like, well, I'm not talking to, I, I'm not talking to myself, I'm talking to Carrie. I thought, isn't, you're, I thought, you're Carrie? Carrie? Yeah, it is. Yeah. And David, we were maybe applying a little bit of knowledge we have from future episodes, yes. but it's not very spoilery, but there's another, all we really need to know at this point is there's another Carrie. Yeah. Uh, but neither Carrie ever explains that to David. David just, just continues to be like, I thought you were Carrie. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Carrie says she didn't say anything either. 
thought your name was Carrie. Yeah. But he says it several times, not just in this scene. I thought your name was Carrie. Yeah, and it just shows David's level of confusion. Like, a normal person would just be like, oh, there's two people named Carrie. Whereas David is just like, everything all the time is confusing because he's got all these voices and these things. And he's like... And again, to go back to something that we talked about in Happy Jack... He's confused because he has what he experiences as or believes to be delusions. He's confused because he has psychic powers that are uh, making it hard to make sense of what's happening. But he's also, on a much more mundane, literal level, like, no one is explaining to him what is actually happening at this moment. Like, if he was a completely neurotypical, powerless person, he would still be confused. Because they're putting him in a situation and not explaining what is happening, even on the level of... There's a person out here talking to someone, and they're not explaining who they're talking to. And in a normal situation, that might not be enough to, like, be upsettingly confusing. But that conversation would be confusing no matter who he was. Yeah, absolutely. Much like in Happy Jack, him being in a what he thinks is a interrogation room, but is actually the bottom of a pool. Like, he doesn't know what's happening mm-hmm. on every level. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And And we as the audience don't know, because in this... We have him in the MRI, then he goes into his own memory, he does all this stuff, and then suddenly Melanie and Batonomy are there. Well, was this all memory work? Or, or is, are we kind of flashing back to when they're in the glass room altogether? And is this, or is, are they doing memory work of the time that he was in the MRI? Or is he thinking oh, like... Oh, yeah, I didn't even think of that. Oh, man, What's the present? Weird. What is the present? <laughs> right? What is the present? I think... There's time dilation in this episode, and you talk about, uh, you know, moving back and forth in time, but that reminds me, too, of, like, the barking dog and things slow down and fast up and then slow Yes. Fast up. Slow down, speed (laughs) up. And then the way that time keeps changing in this episode, in every way that time can change in this episode, is another, like... Again, I think Uppendahl is really knocking it out of the park with capturing David's confusion and disorientation without actually losing us. Yeah. Like, we're, we're still following what's happening pretty well. Yeah. Considering how confusing they're letting it be. Mm-hmm. Right? Absolutely. And how much they're jumping around and things. Uh, the scene with Lenny selling the stove for drugs, I just want to mention that the actor who plays the drug dealer is also <laughs> in... A good other show we love, I Zombie, and in the movie Waitress that I watched recently, and so I feel as soon as he he was there, I was like, oh, it's that guy. And then I don't know, he probably won't be a character in the future, but he's one of those, hey, it's that guy guys. He's pretty great. He's always I don't even know the actor's name, but he's he's great when he shows up. Yeah. Um, I'm going to comment more about the MRI just a little bit, and then we can move on from the MRI. But just to say, the MRI is red light. Yes. In the MRI, and again, maybe it's literally red, although later when we're in the MRI, there's blue light. Mm-hmm. So I think that the MRI's light is literally blue. Yeah. But it's all red shifted. He's in the MRI, and there's red light flashing on right. him. Right. Um, yes. When we are with Potonomy and Melanie in his memory, mm-hmm. and the time jumps in his memory are yeah. another aspect of his memory that Potonomy recognizes to be unusual um, yeah and they feel like it's his fault they're like what are, you, what are you doing stop doing this let us help you and he's like i'm not doing this this is just the way it is uh, it makes me think all this in my in their memory stuff is very uh eternal sunshine of the spotless mind mm. but it makes me think 
in Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind, those jumps and skips in memory would just be how memory works, right? Whereas in this, jumps in his memory aren't just how memory works, they're how his memory works. And it's unusual. And we're drawing attention to the fact that it's unusual. Yeah. It's not just that memories are surreal. And again, just like in Happy Jack, just uh, the fact that what we thought was the present isn't the present Mm -hmm. as a thing in this episode. Yeah, absolutely. Any other thoughts about this section? Um, Oh, the part with, he has another conversation with Sid. And I mean, I don't know if there's much more to talk about that besides uh, he hears Sid's thoughts. Right. Yeah. And, and then he, and he tells her immediately that he's heard her thoughts and she's worried about it. But it's kind of another sweet moment. There's a lot of yeah. sweet moments between him and Sid here. Yeah. And I mean, starting at the very beginning with, they go to do their memory work, and Sid obviously isn't allowed to come with them into the memory, but she's just like hanging out there. Yeah, that's She's in the room, sweet. just like making sure he's okay. Though like, I'm sorry, baby, but your boyfriend is like messed Not up. Okay. Yeah. I hope the show shows a little bit of interest in Sid as Sid soon. Yes. Because... We have here, their relationship is very sweet, but she is very much like she exists to support him. And the show is not really interested in her mind, Mm. in her, like, I don't expect the show to be as interested in the complex workings of her mind as of David, or even in general, because he's the protagonist and more than usually the protagonist, you know, more than is usual for a show where we really care about him. But... I'd like to, the show to give her a little bit more dimension. Yes, I agree. And, like, and to use her power in some way, like, just to have her power there, they're going to have to, like, use that in future mm-hmm. episodes. In the, again, when Melanie and uh, Autonomy are in David's memories, he says, like, you know, why are things weird? Well, my mind is weird. Yeah. I see things that aren't there. Yeah. Says, and Melanie says, you're not schizophrenic yeah she's so insistent it's you're not schizophrenic it's your powers mm-hmm. and i think is it not possible for both yeah i think it doesn't i think she's a little blind to the fact that it could be both it because does not even occur to her that he could be schizophrenic i think she's met i think she's met so many mutants she's rescued so many mutants that have been told they have mental illness and that they're crazy but she knows that they're not and she helps them and she does this whole thing with them and then they're they're fine. As soon as she shows them, as soon as she does the memory work and shows them that they aren't, that this isn't mental illness, then they're fine. And she just tries to cookie cutter it with David and he is not not a cookie cutter. So exactly like Patonomy, her experience is working against her. Yeah, Her experience tells her this is how this works Yeah, and David does not fit their experience. Mm -hmm. When he says it's not him... Do we believe him? They don't believe him. They don't believe him. I kind of believe him, but then, like, I don't know. I think he's not doing it consciously, but I think it is him. I'm totally with you. I totally believe that he's not consciously doing it. Yeah. But... He just has no idea how to control it. Yeah. But then again, maybe someone else has messed with his memories. We don't know. Like, there could... Anyone could have been in there doing something to his memories. Maybe there's, like, a bad patonomy... Working for the other side, messing up his memories. Exactly. Who knows? Could easily be. <laughs> I don't know when he says it because I just jotted it down here. At some point, Carrie says, Your amygdala is huge. It's like, <laughs> David says, 
Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, yeah your amygdala. <laughs> the amygdala, I mean, I just recently rewatched Firefly and River's whole deal is her amygdala is stripped. Right. And so his amygdala is huge. The amygdala deals with fear and pleasure and is like... Interesting. Or if you have the whole like lizard brain thing, the amygdala is the lizard brain. It's the instincts, fear. Yeah, his is really big. That's interesting. interesting. Like he has a lot of fear. Hmm. He has a lot of intensity. Because yeah, she, he said your amygdala is huge, and I don't know about brains. Yeah, I was like his some part of his brain is really big, and it gives him psychic powers. So yeah, like, I'm just gonna accept that as yeah. Kind of, it's the fear and pleasure uh, section that is interesting. There was also like honestly, this might mean nothing. But it just has, so happens that I wrote the word amygdala in my notes, and then immediately afterwards wrote the word Amy, and they both start the same. Hmm. Amygdala is A M Y blah blah, and <laughs> amygdala and Amy, amygdala Amy, and I was like, huh, that's interesting. But honestly, I don't think it means anything. I just thought I'd point it out. <laughs> um, is the angriest boy in the world the devil with the yellow eyes? Are those the same thing? I don't know. Yeah, and we don't have to know, but that's just a question that the angriest boy in the world gets jazz music. <laughs> the angriest boy in the world gets jazz music? When, this, they, uh, in this when they read that? Really? Not, not when he's reading it, uh, so not a scene ago, or not a section ago, but in this, when they go back the second time to his room, and there's an earthquake, and the book falls off, and it falls mm-hmm. open, there's that... Oh. Music when we see the angriest boy in the world. That's interesting. That's definitely interesting. Yeah. Hmm. Okay, so back in the MRI again, David is agitated as Carrie tries to map his memories. A memory comes up of Dr. Poole's office again, and this time they discuss his childhood when he started hearing voices. David talks about his father and the constellations talking to him. The closet door opens in the office, and voices echo all around him. The room shakes. Dr. Poole closes the office door and tries to resume the session. In the present, Carrie scans David's brain, and David grows more agitated and hears a voice calling him. It sounds like a woman, Sid, or Amy. We get a distorted view on Amy at the hospital at Clockworks, looking for David. The woman at the desk tells her he's not there, and neither is Dr. Kissinger, and they have no record of them existing. Eventually, a shadowy version of David appears in the hospital hallway, and Amy sees him, but the men in black and the eye are also there, and they take Amy, and she screams. In the MRI, David's brain lights up, and Carrie is amazed. He leaves, and the room goes dark. David hears voices, and a growling dog, and chewing noises, and then he eventually sees the devil with the yellow eyes. The room is suddenly empty, and the MRI machine is out on the lawn. We get a few different flashes. Dr. Poole sitting in his chair, bloodied and hurt. The frog with the drugs. A voiceover of David and Melanie talking about getting his sister back from Division 3. David tries to leave, and Sid meets him in the elevator. She convinces him to stay and do the work so they can rescue Amy together, telling him that Amy is obviously bait. In the final scene, Amy is waiting in a room, and the eye comes in with a tank of leeches. And says, shall we begin? Cut to the credits. That's the end of the 
Can we just comment on the the effectiveness of "Shall we begin?" as the last line of yes, an episode? Yes, I know. Television. I know. Shall right? we begin? The end. The end. Yeah. Okay. Well, let's go back to like the actual part. So, the first thing, we're back in the MRI machine, and I again, yeah. in terms of like what is the literal chronology here? How many MRI visits does David get? Are we flashing back to him? Back to his original thing? Has he gone to the MRI several times? How many MRI scans does he have? I feel like it's just the one. I feel like it's just the one, but somehow we're having memory work at the same time. That's weird. I don't know. It's, it's, it's totally weird. Or we're having all this memory work and then the MRI. Um, I'm going to talk about this, the conversation about his father. Mm-hmm. Um, basically, I just, just want to comment on how David gets so calm and happy while he's talking about the constellations. And he starts like he's twitchy and stuttery in this scene and yeah. he develops this calm and he's talking about the constellations and then he moves from that to so scared when the closet door opens like so scared mm-hmm. and partly great work from Dan Stevens but also what is in the closet yes and what did the stars say yes because Dr. Poole says, what did the stars say? And that's when the closet door opens and David's like, I can't tell you. I'm not allowed to tell you. I'm not supposed stars. to talk to you. I'm not supposed to talk to says. you. And he doesn't quite spell it out, but presumably about what the stars said. Yeah. Like the stars said something to him that he can't tell mm. Dr. Poole. And it is terrifying to him. It's <laughs> especially affecting how terrified he is when, like, Three seconds ago, he was as calm and happy as we've ever seen And that, the story that he tells, I mean, just in terms of, like, acting, is so... Dan Stevens, like, this is, like, this amazing monologue of him telling the story of his father. And he says he doesn't finish sentences. Yeah. He'll say, you know, my father, he would take me out in the... to see the stars. Yeah. And you just fill in the words. And it's... Honestly, it's like a person talks because we all do that. We stop and not finish a word and so either someone else will fix it. Even like our daughter loves finishing it when, when yeah. we do that. She, yeah. gets, she gets really annoyed she when, we when, when, we, when we don't finish a sentence. Exactly. Yeah. And so and like, all credit just, to Noah Hawley. We, we have talked a lot about the strong writing in terms of like character and story and stuff, but we haven't really talked about like dialogue yeah and like that is amazing dialogue right there that whole that whole story yeah and i i didn't even fully realize that he gets really calm he says when did the voices start talking to you and just like he gets all happy and he starts naming constellations like yeah. it's really weird because it feels like completely non sequitur when did the voices start talking to you cassiopeia canis major and like what are you talking about but then he tells mm-hmm. the story of his yeah, it's yeah. beautifully oh, written and beautifully so acted. Agreed. Um, yeah. Well, so, whoops, guess they're down an MRI machine. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah. This is what happens when you put David into things. I'm sure they have people who can fix that. I don't know. But maybe. What, what, what I didn't notice the second time, until the second time I watched it was the room's intact. Yeah. He didn't blow the MRI machine through the wall, he which is what I thought. It. He teleported it onto the lawn. Yeah. What? And he doesn't he... just have telekinesis. He has like the ability to 
I mean, I guess that's the same as making all the doors disappear in the... Yeah. He he literally can manipulate the world around him. We see the guy who rescues him from uh, the pool back in Happy Jack moving things with his mind. Yeah. But this is not the same thing as that. And he seems... I mean, he has that power also. Yeah. But this, like, he makes something disappear and reappear somewhere else. And also, he doesn't teleport himself out. No. He doesn't teleport himself away from the room. He doesn't break the room. He teleports the MRI machine away from him. Mm -hmm. What does that mean? Yeah. I don't know. In, like... What does that say about his mental state and his character in this moment? He's taking the thing that's making him anxious and, like, banishing it. Yeah. From him. Yeah. He's not moving. No. Right? I think, I feel like there's, that's significant. Yeah. He's not taking himself out of the situation. He's taking the situation out of himself. Exactly. It's another, like, inside-outside thing. Mm-hmm. And, like, I was th- thinking back on that to, like, there's the room they go to do the memory work in is this glass room in the middle of the forest. It's not yeah. connected to the building at all. It's its own separate little space of a glass room in the middle of the forest. And that's kind of like it's an inside and an outside. And the MRI machine, he's taking the inside and putting it outside. And there's a lot of and again, in and out metaphors. Yeah, absolutely. Um when they're in the elevator, uh, Sid and David in the elevator going down, mm-hmm. Sid says, you know, are you leaving because of me? And she says, like, I'll hold hands. I want to. Oh, I know. Isn't that heartbreaking? So much. Heartbreaking. Like that she'll, she's willing to compromise her oh. physical feelings to make him stay. And that's where, like you were saying, I hope that this show gets a little more... Uh, keeps giving her more and more character because I don't want her to be this simpering. She's so, it's so, yeah. But yet also that is so something someone would do, even not like in a romantic relationship. It's so something that a human would do is like, stay, I'll do anything. I'll make myself uncomfortable. So you stay. I, I, more than the like, yeah, I'll make myself uncomfortable. So you can stay is sad and heartbreaking and touching, but the like, you can hold hands. I want to. And we know it's a lie. It's a lie. He knows it's a lie. And even, like, she, the performance, Ugh. again, I keep praising the performances in this episode. I feel yeah. like they they were good in Happy Jack, but they're a step above yeah. in this episode all the, across the board. Mm-hmm. Like, her performance in that scene and her performance of that line, her delivery of that line, is like, you know? Yeah. Is it because of me? We can hold hands. Yeah. I want I to. And, like... She does yeah, not want to. Yeah, There's absolutely, no absolutely. read of that. There's no way to hear that line and think she wants yeah. to, right? So I just realized, like, literally as I wrote my read my recap just now, that she says, Amy is bait. And then there's a tank full of leeches. Leeches right. or something. You're using baits. <laughs> <laughs> what's, yeah. he, what's he going to use the leeches oh, for? Oh, what are the leeches I for don't now? know. I don't know. I don't know what the leeches are for. Um, oh. Again, back to the elevator. When they're standing, David's standing next to the door of the elevator and the light ahead is a ring. And he's standing there and the frame of the light behind him is like a halo. Mm. Like More m- circles. More circles. Circles everywhere. Always mention the circles. That's me. That's my... I have, I would like to talk about the music throughout the episode. Yes. And I would like to talk about the clothes. Okay, the so episode. let's talk about clothes first and music second. Okay. So... Amy was in green last time, and this time she's in pink. She's in pink as a childhood, pink as an adult. Except, Except in 
the very end, she's right. in like mint green. She's back yeah. in green, but it's a really light green. Right. Interesting. So what is that about? Like I have hospital green. I have thoughts about her in mint green. Like I think it's you know she's a less she's in a less secure, less powerful position, so mm -hmm. she's a less powerful version of herself. Yeah. She's weaker, and she's wearing a weaker color of the color that we expect her to be in. Yeah. I don't really have thoughts about why she's in pink. I mean, she's in pink as a little girl, and mm -hmm. then she's in pink. She's really happy because she's talking about being engaged to Ben, or going to be engaged right. soon in that one memory. Yeah. And I feel like it's kind of a the pinkest, she's pinkest when she's happiest, mm -hmm. and then green is kind of her present. Her present state, present and therefore, state. I mean, we can add to that, therefore her present state isn't happy. Yeah, that too. Mm -hmm. um, Sid is all in black. Pretty much this entire episode. She's got the scarf. She's got the, the, scarf. the scarf is red. It's in her hair. It's around her neck sometimes. I feel it's like changes. the scarf, maybe it's in my imagination. Uh, I feel like the scarf is oranger than it used to be. <laughs> maybe it's literally the same scarf. I think you're crazy. <laughs> you're, you're, uh, maybe, possibly. It does, it, they're different scarves. Right. Sometimes okay. it's like a chiffon one yeah. in her hair and sometimes it's like a thick silk one around her neck. Right. So maybe one of them is oranger than the other, and yeah. that's what I'm noticing. Absolutely. Okay. Her again in the black. Oh, yeah. black with the black gloves now. Yeah. Like, and that, and like that, pretty much becomes her uniform from now on. Is like she's very. Yeah. She wears all black and black gloves. And a splash of color. And a splash of red. <laughs> a splash of red. Always, <laughs> always red. Yeah. Or orange, ready orange. Yeah. Yeah. But it's not like that's like, you know, you almost expect that like, oh, this is like a team of superheroes or whatever from Summerland, maybe they all wear black all the time, but no. No, no. they all wear different things. Different things. Melanie and uh, her all, like, cream colors. Yeah, and her sunglasses. I feel like she wears sunglasses a lot. No one mm. else really wears sunglasses. And they are something about her, they're a mask, not in a superhero mm. way, but in a, like, she is, she is closed off or hidden in some way. Yeah. Like the sunglasses are about her not being accessible. She's getting into other people's heads, but no one's getting into her head. Yeah. She's got the sunglasses. That's true. They're her Magneto's helmet. <laughs> <laughs> sure. That's a little bit of a stretch, but we can say that. Um, uh, Ptolemy wears circles. Well, his, his, his collared shirt has circles on it. His collared shirt is covered in circles. He, he looks so snappy. I like the way he dresses. Yeah, me too. I love his hat. I love his oh, everything. I really like Photonomy. <laughs> he, he's great. Agreed. He's a snappy dresser and uh, charming guy. Charming guy. Yeah. Agreed. Um, but him wearing circles brings it to David. There's circles everywhere. Photonomy's wearing circles and David wears a shirt with a round peg and a square hole Yep, in it. Yep. Right? And all the emphasis on circles everywhere. There are circles in Clockworks. There are circles in Summerland. There are people wearing circles. And David has a shirt with a square on it. Yep. Right? How much more, how much less subtle could we be about yeah. he does not fit? He does not fit. Yeah. Um, but he also wears, that's the shirt he wears in the present. He wears a black, a white shirt with, with black stripes. It's yes. All of the past scenes. And he that prison stripes. Yeah. He's literally wearing the same thing as the kids dressed up as prisoners in yes, the last episode. Exactly. Exactly. But like, if you didn't think that those were prison stripes, 
last episode, we seeded that for you. Yes, exactly. That he is wearing is prison stripes in all throughout the past. Yep. And like, I don't have a big symbolic meaning for this, but when he comes out of Dr. Poole's office with the long, with the jacket and the big collar flipped up, mm-hmm. man, does he look super villain with the, <laughs> co- the, the collar popped flipped collar. up. The popped collar looks very, I mean, it looks kind of villainous in, even in real life, but yeah, yeah. him with the popped collar and like hair in his, and he looks emo, I suppose. Yeah. Uh, I think he's wearing eyeliner. <laughs> uh, possibly the character isn't. Yeah. But, uh, He's got a black popped collar and that there's something, maybe what we're going for is not so much villain as uh, punk, goth, punk, emo, tortured teen or young adult kind of thing. So maybe that's more what we're going for. But I thought like the striped shirt, not only like the jail aspect, but like this is all on the same day. Right. Yeah. We go from him in Dr. Poole's office to the... Lenny and getting the drugs and the having the drugs and the seeing, like, you know, and this is all one day. Is one day. It's one session with right. Dr. Poole. This isn't like we're seeing multiple sessions with him. It's all one session. Like, it's just, that's interesting. Mm-hmm. So um, music. Talking about music, the, the song at the beginning, Road to Nowhere, is a song by Talking Heads. Very 80s song originally, but performed here by Rachel Keller, uh, the actress who plays Sid, possibly in character as Sid, probably not, but, you know, there's some weirdness. First of all, a beautiful opening to the song, beautiful Beautiful performance of it. Haunting. It has, I mean, there's a few lines that stand out, but the line that starts the episode and starts the song, we know where we're going but we don't know where we've been. And the episode is all about how he can't trust his memory. It's a song, it's a line that actually makes no sense in the context of the song, which is about road to nowhere, so we shouldn't know where Ooh. we are going. Um, <laughs> it's a road from nowhere. Exactly. But in the context of this episode, like, we know where we're going. They have a purpose. Mm-hmm. But they don't know where they've come from. And David doesn't know where he's come from, and he can't explain or understand his past or how he got here or what. If you told me that they had written an original song to go specifically with this episode, I would believe you. Because yeah. the word, that lyric fits so exactly mm-hmm. with what this episode is about, possibly what this series is about. Yeah. And the other, epi- the other line in the song, we're not little children anymore. And then we flash back to him being a child. We flash back to yeah. like this show is about growing up. Yeah, it's about you know coping with your childhood. Sid and Patonomy both talk about their experiences as children. Patonomy yes. talks about his father's bad memory and snapping in his face, and Sid talks about her mother was mean to her. It's like a throwaway line, but they mm. both talk about their childhood and they talk about trying to take all three of those characters, David, Sid, and Patonomy, are like taking power in their adulthood right yeah. we're not little children anymore i feel like could be a statement of theme for this episode and for the entire show and for the whole show yeah, this yeah. Is what this is about or another line from this little bit of uh this song that she sings uh the future is certain give us time to work it out 
is again it's all about do, do the work do the work do, the whole episode like, the whole episode is do the work and in the beginning we say like the future is certain give us time to work it out yeah i just feel like this this opening and this is why we, yeah. we decided that the road to nowhere is the title for this episode because these opening it's like you know five lines of the beginning of a song and then mm. they stop and don't sing the rest of the song but and they, every line of that five lines is like extremely fitting for yes. what is happening in this episode. Absolutely. Any other eyes kind of doing a lot of talking? Any thoughts so about the road to um, No, I think you've said most of it. What's I don't know what the other songs are. I know musical in cues. the uh, car when Sid is telling David about how she found herself in the company of the Summerland people, mm-hmm. and she's in the car. The song playing is called "Don't Say Goodbye." by mm-hmm. Johnny Woodson, who is someone I had not, um, I wasn't familiar at all. The song is Someday, Someday, Maybe I'll Get to See You Once in a While. Mm. And like, it's not actually, but it sounds like almost, you know, 40s musically. It's mm. almost like that kind of, uh, or, or 30s musically, like that kind of blues yeah. uh it's more recent than that, but the sound is like quite uh, depression era blues sound. Yeah. Um, and it's about like maybe someday I'll get to see you while she's talking about what she wants is to go back and find him again. Yeah. Um, and then finally, the last song over the, the closing credits. Oh, yes, I didn't mention that. The song is called uh, Hyperactive. It's by Thomas Dolby, who is uh, best known for She Blinded Me With Science. Ah, uh, yes. That guy. That guy. Um, and the line from that that, like, really, I think, is appropriate for this episode, especially fitting for this episode, is that uh, they hooked my brain to a machine just to stop my mouth from spouting junk. Hmm. Right? It's about... Miss or over-diagnosis, or even whether it's accurate diagnosis, it's about mental health professionals trying to control people by diagnosing them, by hooking them up to technology to control what they're, how they're acting in the world. The idea of Melanie's idea that like, you're not schizophrenic. Yeah. I'm like I was diagnosed as hyperactive my whole life. And even in happy Jack in the last episode, they literally hook a machine up to his brain. Yeah. And in this episode, they don't hook it up, but they stick a machine on his brain. Yep. I do like that. That's also. And yeah, the, credit song will change every time. This is not yes. standard. They don't have a standard credit song that changes per episode. So it'll be interesting to see what episode, what songs are on over the credits at the end in the future. Yeah. I'm sure we'll end up talking about it. So exactly. I think that pretty much wraps us up for yeah, this episode. Yeah. So that is it for uh, Road to Nowhere. Thanks for joining us here on Clockworks. I've been Paul Moffat. I've been Jan Moffat. If you want to join in the conversation, if you have thoughts about this episode of Legion that you'd like to share with us or with each other, feel free to contact us on Twitter. You can get in touch with us. With you can get in touch with us on Twitter at at ClockworksCast. And We'd love to hear any of your comments that you have about our show, and if you have more thoughts to add to it. Thank you for joining us. Goodbye.